This is episode 66 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me. A common myth is that scaling a business means that you have to compromise the core values, culture, and human-friendly qualities that the business originally started with. In today's episode, Laura Novak-Meyer, an entrepreneur who's one of only 3% of women business owners who grow their company to more than $1 million in revenue, joins me to share what she learned in the process of scaling her business while keeping it true to its core. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to introduce you to Laura Novak-Meyer. Laura is the owner and founder of Little Nest Portraits, a luxury boutique brand of photography studios specializing in family portraiture. As an independent photographer, Laura built Little Nest as a way to meet customer demand in an underserved niche of the market. Today, Laura is one of only 3% of women business owners to grow her company to more than a million dollars in revenue. Little Nest Portraits is now an emerging franchise company that's staying true to its leaders' core values, vision, and passion. Laura, thanks so much for joining me on the show today and for the great work you do out there in the world. Thank you so much for having me. I feel really lucky to be here. Great. So we always start with origin stories to, to get everybody into who you are and where you are. So what led you to starting your original photography business way back at the beginning? Yeah, way back in the beginning. So I started my own business at the young and naive age of 23, which was a good time to start because I didn't know what I didn't know mm-hmm. and really dove into being an independent photographer. So for the first eight or nine years of my career, I grew as an independent photographer photographing weddings, portraits, celebrities, traveling around the country, and just becoming an expert in my craft. Over time, it evolved into a retail concept and now into a franchise. Alrighty, so independent retail franchise. You, you just went through like several rounds of the entrepreneurial journey there. So yeah. let, let's go back. So going from in, independent to retail, what made that jump happen? Yeah, I covered about 15 you years. Did. About 15 I was like, okay, let's, let's yeah. I was going to see where you're going to go. Just let, <laughs> yeah. So in 2009, a couple things happened. First of all, the economy was not so hot as many of us know. And then also I started thinking about getting married and having a family. And I realized that while being an independent photographer, and albeit a very highly compensated one, if I took three months off, then there was, I was down, you know, quite a bit that year. So the idea of it, uh, creating an organization that was bigger than me or any individual person was very appealing to me. And I had pretty much reached a ceiling in my local market close to the age of 30. And the second thing that happened was the recession. I was a very uh, premium priced independent photographer. And a lot of people were saying to me, you know what, Laura, I love you, but not this year. And I thought to myself, gosh, there really seems to be a gap in the market for people who are looking to spend maybe $500, $800 a year on family photography, but want the quality and the experience of a higher end product. And service. And so we went into, um, I, I gathered together some of my team members and we brainstormed this and went into our flat, what's now our flagship location, which is in a high end uh, open air lifestyle center. So it's an upscale strip mall. 
Mm-hmm. And we're next to a gap, we're in with a Whole Foods, and it really was very different than what other people had experienced with photography. Worked out all the kinks, the little nest that we started with six years ago is not the little nest you see today. And somebody said to us, you know what, why aren't you in the main line of Philadelphia, which is really the affluent, it's right near Villanova, it's really the affluent area of Philadelphia. And we thought, why aren't we in Philadelphia, in the main line? Opened a second location, really duplicated our unit level economics and thought, okay, now we're onto something. We were approached to franchise. You were, okay. I, I, we were. I, I was really struggling with how do we, it was, a, it was great, the company was at a place where it didn't need me on a day-to-day basis to run it, but then how do you how do you grow? And you don't put that much work and effort into systems, processes, operations, training without growing it. It doesn't make sense. But we thought, how do we grow this? And we were approached to franchise. We were really approached to bring the brand to other markets. And when I did the research, I realized that brand licensing was not something that I was that interested in because you can't control it. Mm-hmm. And it's the Federal Trade Commission is very specific that if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. And you, if you start to create controls around brand licensing, they really see it as a franchise. So we went through the whole process of franchising and getting through the paperwork. And now we've uh, sold three, opened one, and we're on the brink of selling another. So, All righty. So <laughs> I'm going to go even further back because yeah. – um, in my experience working with scale-ups and startups, like yeah. it takes a certain way of being in the world to go from independent to like, what, how many people did you have in your first Little Nest store? My first Little Nest location, well, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I did have employees as an independent photographer, but none of them made it to my retail concept. Because the kind of employees that you have when you're an independent, when you're when it's the Laura show and you have employees supporting the Laura show, that's very different than people who want to make a career above and beyond a single individual. So I had a few employees as an independent photographer in a small destination location. Then we started Little Nest with probably five or six employees in the retail concept. Now we're up to 26 between franchising. Uh, we have a back office where there's franchising and retouching that take place and then the two company-owned locations. Okay, so part of that critical jump is even going from just Laura being the sole photographer to hire yeah. employees because I've talked to enough photographers and that's a jump that they don't even make. So again, you, you're taking us on all of the loop-de-loops too quickly, right? Yeah. So you're there by yourself. What makes you hire that first employee? Really, I think that it's, it's figuring out um, – I always say that you should always try to pursue those high value activities. Mm-hmm. So taking, looking at your calendar and saying, okay, what are my 10, $12 an hour jobs and how can I, I really shouldn't be, if I want to grow this business, I really shouldn't be doing those five, you know, those 10, um, $15 an hour jobs, I should be doing the $50, $100 an hour jobs. So that's really how I've always thought about growing. In fact, I, I had that conversation with my leadership team today um, with, I have a, basically a marketing gal that really is our CMO. I have a head of operations and really thinking through, you know, what are some of their low value activities and how do we hand them off? So we're always constantly, you know, thinking about that. So that was probably the first jump I made in terms of the organizational structure. Um, I have a feeling you're also probably interested in how did, how did you let go, right? Well, that, yeah, how do you let go? I mean, but what I want to say in here is I often end up telling clients that like, look, if you're doing those 10 to $12, like you're saving money, 
but yeah. you're paying someone, i.e. yourself, 10 to $12, right? Totally. And because you're losing out on the opportunity to do that. So we could say, if you have the opportunity to make $100 and you're doing $12 an hour work, every hour you do the $12, you've lost 88 bucks, right? You totally did. Um, and so it's like, and I know that's a mind shift piece, but it's one of those critical pieces in creative knowledge work that you don't see people getting. Um, and we can talk about the fear that's under that. Um, yeah. And so... But what I'm, what I'm pointing out is you have, that's an interesting journey, especially because that probably happened when you were, what, 24, 25? No, I was probably closer to my early 30s when that was happening. I mean, I had the original employees. The original in employees, not, you know. Yes. Individ, in, um, my employees that I had as an independent photographer, I was probably 24, 25. Okay. And those were really, um, you know, team members that are so different than the kinds of people that are part of our organization today. Their primary purpose was to help me do my job. That was their main function versus building a career for themselves within an organization that I created. So it's very, very different types of employees. It's the kind of employee that maybe you, you throw on your back and you hike up the mountain versus the ones that, you know, dig the, the trenches with you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very different. Absolutely. Um, did you have any leadership or entrepreneurial background before you started your photography business? I, I did. I had my dad as an entrepreneur. Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I also have both an art and a business degree. Mm. So, but I, I will say that my business degree, I really don't use it. Most of what I do today is a result of mistakes I've made and people I've surrounded myself with. Uh, but I do, I have both the business and the, and the art and that really throws off a lot of people because they might know me as a photographer and they're like, wait, what? what? You know, you're, kind of, you're a CEO too? Or people who know of me as a, a reputable CEO in the area sort of assume that I'm not a strong photographer. I've had that happen too. And then might see my work and, and um, be pleasantly surprised. So it's, it's interesting because as Andy Warhol said, business is the most challenging form of art. It really is. And, and, Business is a creative process, but many people um, are determined to have those two aspects be mutually exclusive. I'm glad you went there because normally I'm not always the one saying that they're saying this, but why in your experience do people cling to that divide between the art and the business? Because it's, it's, it's easier to not embrace the things you need to right? To just say, oh, well, that's business. I'm an artist. I don't do business. Like, listen, business is not, um, I actually find the creative much more challenging. You know, P&L is, is elementary school math. So it, it's, the, it's allowing yourself to be intimidated by something that is ultimately going to get in the way of your own success. And I find that a lot of artists have a hard time getting out of their own way. And that's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. Um, whenever anybody comes to me for advice and they're like, I don't know how to read a PNL, I'm like, sit down right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to show you. Do not be intimidated by this. And it's, it's powerful to know how to run your numbers. It's powerful to know how to run your numbers. I would go even deeper. It's powerful to understand that the, understand the cages that you make for yourself. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm an artist means I'm not a business person. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a cage you've made for yourself. Right. Yes. And no one else can unlock that for you. Right. We can say, here's how you do it. But if you sit down and you read that P and L and it's like, this is not what artists do. 
you're not going to be able to get the, like to actually be able to pay the attention that you need to. Yeah. It's difficult to grow your company when you don't understand every aspect of it. It's really important. So we have 2016 members. And at this point in the company, there's typically somebody who knows how to do something as well, or if not better than me, but I know how to do their job. And I think that's very important when you're managing people that you have empathy and that you have sympathy for the position that they're in within their job function. I'm gonna uh, call- I think that has been important for me as I grow. Absolutely. I'm going to qualify that a little bit. You don't know how to do their job well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I've seen that happen with a lot of managers and like, I've got to know how to do their job. And I'm like, actually, if you're a hiring manager, your job is to hire people that are 10x better than you at that particular skill. But you got to know kind of what that what they're doing over there. You know, you need to be able to give them advice and mentorship. And if you're just like, oh gosh, you know, there's been times where I've out, I've, I've delegated things I didn't understand. Uh, and when I came back to it, I realized, gosh, I really should have been providing direction from the beginning around this. Because at the end of the day, this business is something that I, I understand deeply because I'm the only one that's been here since the beginning. Good. Um, I'm going to... F- I'm going to hold on fast forwarding. We've kind of gone backwards, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, most of what you do now are based upon the challenges that you learned along, along the way. So what are, let's say three really important challenges, holes you fell in that were like, ah, like, you know, once you climbed out, you realized, okay, here's how you do it. But it was just one of those seminal learning moments for you. I think it's exactly what we were talking about. One of the mistakes that I made is that I've either delegated things that I didn't understand or thought that I couldn't do without fully understanding them. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that nobody wins by being a control freak. So my team members have complete independence and that allows me to sleep well at night and it empowers them. And at the same time, I delegated, um, like I said, things I didn't totally understand and then I dig into it and then I would it would be something that would make a lot of sense to me. So for example, like potentially like the way that we manage payroll, I need to understand these functions to be able to speak to them intelligently. And at the end of the day, I'm the one responsible for making sure the business runs well. I need to fully understand that. And there were things I put off for years that when I dug in, I was like, oh gosh, like this is, we could have been so much more efficient here. So that's part of it. For sure. I think the second thing is over the years, I really have learned how to avoid the landmines of entrepreneurship. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. As we're growing, we're looking to become a national brand. There's been times that I have just been bogged down for weeks by something that I think now wouldn't bother me as much, knowing what I know today. So just allowing myself to get tripped up in and, and uh, challenges that were, um, could have been addressed easier or more simply. Um, and the third is not being totally clear with people on their performance and avoiding those conversations. And there is a wonderful article that has been trending lately called Radical Candor. Have you seen that going around? I haven't seen it going around, but I'm writing it down now. Oh my gosh. Wonderful. And it is... Um, I think her name's Kemble Scott. I could be quoting her name wrong, but um, she was like a, a Google exec and a startup gal. But um, she 
she proposes that there's four quadrants. If you can picture, you know, the x-axis, like the degree to which you care about somebody and the y-axis is the degree to which you can be direct. You really want to be and you want to show deep empathy for people and you also want to give them direct, candid feedback on their performance. And when you care for people but you're not direct, that's just called ruinous empathy. You're just like, you're just all just kumbayaing when nobody's actually saying what they need to be said. And that's 100% the way that I was for a long time, because I didn't like hurt, hurting people's feelings. So I would hold back on clear and direct feedback. Yeah. And then if you're um, indirect and you don't care about people, then you're passive aggressive. And if you're direct and you don't care about people, you're just an a-hole. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, really thinking about that quadrant. <laughs> and I would say that's 100%. My mistake is too much ruinous empathy and not enough radical candor. So that's something I've changed in the last year. And it has dramatically changed uh, how I've worked. Great. Two other resources here for that. Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Yep. Fantastic book. And though it's a little dated, the one minute manager, right? Yeah. It's a little dated, but you know, I have a lot of my clients focus on that one minute reprimand, which is super uncomfortable. Yes. It's super uncomfortable to do it, but it's really powerful once you uh, modernize it a little bit because we, we live in a different world of business when it comes to humanity. Um, but at the same time, the insights from One Minute Manager and um, Susan Scott, is, it's a great book. She doesn't, she's not quite as dated, um, are really powerful. So if you know you need to work on your feedback <laughs> and those, those bold conversations, three great articles apparently, Rad- Radical Candor, um, Fierce Conversations, and The One Minute Manager. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So you're part of the 3% of women who build businesses at over a million dollars, right? Yep. Um, and so I've worked with a lot of different people from different places. And I noticed that there tend to be trends in female leadership, right? Yep. That, that are somewhat different. And you mentioned earlier, you didn't want to hurt people's feelings, right? Yeah. Um, how did you really overcome that? Like, what was that point, if you can t- bring us into the story, where you knew, like, this is actually a problem that I've got to work on, and it's not so much about gender, it's just what it takes to, to be successful and take care of people? You know, I think that it was um, little cracks in the foundation over time where I realized that the, I wasn't helping anybody by not being clear. I wasn't not only helping the person I needed to be giving feedback to, because I think one of the biggest gifts that a manager can give an employee is clear feedback. I noticed that you do this. I noticed that you don't plan ahead and it comes back to bite you. I've noticed that when you're communicating with your team, it's it's uncomfortable for you. And my guess is maybe you're trying to be a little bit of too much of their friend. I noticed that do you think that's true? Or you check it out with them. I think that's one of the biggest gifts we can give other people with our wisdom and experience and all of the hard knocks we've had growing our business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, so I wasn't helping them and I wasn't helping me because afterwards the business wasn't maybe performing or maybe payroll was running high or, there was, or uh, we weren't planful about something that we needed to be more assertive on in terms of you know, scheduling, for example. And then all of a sudden, I'm the one hanging, you know, I'm the one who is personally responsible for the financial performance of this business. So he wasn't helping anybody avoiding these conversations. And that's something that's been a big shift for me in the last year or two. I also found that it was creating a culture 
where people weren't expected to be held accountable for their behavior or their results because I just wasn't having those conversations. And I realized that a company raising toddlers isn't isn't that different than having team members in the sense that they want boundaries. They may be pissed about the boundaries, but they're happier or more productive when they know what it takes to win or lose at their jobs. Good people are anyways. Yeah. And so those are the things that I've really had to learn. I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one and my team <laughs> listens to the podcast. So it's one of those, but it's one of those things where just bear with me. I think if we pretended that people were really smart dogs, that we would all get along a lot better. And here's why. Um, when we train dogs and when we are with dogs, like we know that they like feedback. We know how to give them feedback. We know there's repetition. We know that we have to train them. Like we don't get a new dog and just expect it to know how to do anything, right? Yeah. So there's this training and this constant feedback and it sits and we say, great job. And it sits for the 18th time and we say, great job, right? Um, and it's one of those things I think we expect people to be not who they are, you know? Uh, yeah, these very social, emotional beings that really just want to be told, here's what good looks like, and you did a great job with it, right? Yes. Opposed to just figuring it out on their own. Yep. We're helping people become the best versions of themselves as a result of the organization you built, which is something I'm very passionate about. And it's really not that dissimilar to, to parenting. You know, every parenting book I read, I'm like, yep, yep. <laughs> I learned that through 10 years of managing people. Absolutely. And so, yeah. It's really that those parallels are really interesting. Um, and I have amazing team members. I don't want to say that I don't, but I've, I've learned, um, you know, throughout the years of just how, how to be effective. And I know you, you started this question by asking, how do you, does it, first of all, does it matter to be in that top 3% of women who grow their businesses over, to over a million dollars? I would say only if it's your personal goal. I, I don't think, I'm not one that would say, you know, all women have to perform at a certain level. I think that it just is a matter of your aspirations and your goals for yourself. So I'll just put that out there. I, I'm not looking to be the poster child of that at all. But I would say that um, with those, with growing that organization, you really can't do it without figuring out how to manage people and getting things done through other people, which is the definition of management. There's, there's really no, I don't know anybody that could grow a business to over a million dollars without doing that well. There are some online businesses where you business models where you could probably do it but outside yeah. of that realm not so much right uh, yeah you need people you need people at a certain point and i think that's where we see people get stuck at sort of that quarter million dollar road bump where yes. like that's just you know just as a general trend that's about as far as you can take most businesses without actually taking this whole management and team stuff seriously yes yep agreed um so as you well know, there are, there's this myth out there. We've been talking about myths, right? But there's this other myth that as you grow a company, the ideas are the ideas that you'll lose touch with your values and the motivations and you sell out. And then all of a sudden it's not this creative business and it's this completely different animal. I see it all the time too, but why, and you disagree with it, right? Um, why do you think this myth has legs? Because I think that growth and change can can produce fear in people. And when you grow without constantly reinforcing your values, and I'll tell you a little story about this. So when I started considering franchising, I did it, you know, behind the scenes. I talked to my leadership team. I did not let the manager, did not let the whole organization know that I was considering franchising. And then one day when our franchise paperwork is together and we we're pretty sure that we had 
our first sale queued up. I brought my team together. I announced it. I said how great it was for everybody. And it was a wonderful, in my mind, this wonderful moment that I was sharing with my team. Well, let me tell you, I really regretted doing it that way because for a year or two afterwards, there was a lot of like really letting people know, hey, we're not changing just we're growing. Like our missions and our values will still stay the same. And one thing that I wished I had done differently is as soon as I thought that I would, I I was thinking about going through franchising, I wished I had gone to my team and said, hey, we're going to grow. And I'm not exactly sure how. It might be through franchising. It might be through company-owned locations. But I want to let you know that our mission and our values will never stay the same. Did I mention that our mission and values will never stay the same? Oh, by the way, did you know about our values and our mission? They're never, they're never going to change. Mm-hmm. And they'll always stay the same. And I, I wished I had done that more proactively because I think when people hear that you're growing, their automatic assumption is she's just, she's going to forget about me. I'm not going to be important to her anymore. Um, and I think that's, that's human nature. And now I'm much more proactive about communicating our mission and values. And I bring them up often. They're not just hanging up on our wall. They're something I refer to all the time. I had a long conversation with my management team today about it. And, um, but I think, I think that you have, I think that everybody, it's difficult for us entrepreneurs because we love change. We're super excited about it. But I think it's important to remember that people are typically part of an organization like the one we're in because they're not entrepreneurial. They don't want to own their own business. They want to go home at night and not worry about having a company, you know, to tend to. And so they're built differently and they, they have different needs. And that was a big lesson that I learned in that situation. Yeah, being an entrepreneur, believe it or not, is a career choice. Yeah, a lot of people do not want to make, and we build our careers on secure foundations. And if you're hardwired to be an entrepreneur, it's great to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, right? but most people aren't and don't want to do that. They want to go home and go to work and do a great job and go home. You know, um, I'm curious though. You said you spent a year or two going through this whole franchising thing and not telling the rest of the employees. Why did you go that way in a way that you thought it was going to be taking care of your company? Because I know, like, I know you well enough now that you had great intentions. Yes. What were those intentions? Probably not to get them amped up about something that may or may not happen. And so as we're going through this process at any time, I might've said, you know what, guys, I don't like this legal document. I'm not, we're not doing this. And then I might have announced something that we didn't end up doing. But what I learned through that is as leaders, it's not our job to manage other people's anxiety, right? It's their job to manage their own anxiety. It's up to us to be honest. And I think I was pulling back the information because I was worried about what kind of uncertainty would feel for them. But now I realize that, and that's been my message lately, part of my leadership message, say, listen, you're always going to get straight up honesty from me. I'm going to let you know when something's happening or when something's brewing, it may or may not come to fruition. If that uncertainty is too much for you to manage, let's talk about it. But I'm not going to, I'm going to let you know before a decision is made so you can speak up about any concerns or objections you have about it. And I can hear you out and I may take that into consideration in my decision-making process. So it really taught me to be transparent. But yeah, my, my intention was like, oh, I'm not going to bother them with it until it's, a, you know, unless until it's absolutely happening. Yeah. Yeah. People are, are, uncomfortable with uncertainty yep but can't stand being blindsided yeah right and so there's this tension that you have to walk is that making people uncomfortable but without i mean because that's sort of the uncertainty but blindsiding people almost 100 percent will will be the wrong way to go right 
And, and, and it's interesting how much our culture has changed since I was open about that mistake and said, you know, guys, I just wished I handled this differently. I felt as though I did you a disservice. Let's never surprise each other. And so I had, I spoke about that in a company-wide meeting. Well, about a month or two ago, I, I went to a couple of people in the organization. I was thinking about doing something different with an annual promotion that we really rely on for business. I got their feedback on it. And I went back to them and I said, hey, I want to let you know I'm doing something, I'm going in a different direction than what you recommended, not because I, I don't think what you said was valid, but because that's the right decision for the business at this time. But it's filed away in the back of my mind. And both of, both of these individuals, I checked with somebody in each location, a, a um, employee level, not a manager or leader level, an employee level um, uh, individual team member. And both of them said, Laura, we know you'll always listen to us and we know that you always make the right decision. We trust you and thanks for checking. And it was, and it was people who would not BS me, people who have been with the company for a long time and do not BS me, like it or not, right? And I thought, okay, cool. Like that's what you want them to think. Like I'll always hear you. I may not agree, but I'll always listen. And that was, and that's what I hope for with the franchisees because franchisees are going to have a whole nother dynamic that employees don't have because they're not my employees. So, and, and my hope is that they would say the same thing. Great. So we've talked about your challenges and sort of the lessons learned. Let's talk about those spark moments when you just knew you were in the right place, doing the right thing. Like, Ooh, that's a win. Let's, let's keep doing that. So, you know, two or three spark moments throughout the career. So just so we see what that looks like. It's that entrepreneurial adrenaline rush. Like, you know, when you're onto a good idea because that adrenaline goes from your feet to your head, it kind of shoots through your heart and you're like, oh man, this is good. And I think when we started Little Nest, it felt that way. I would kind of drive by the location. I would look in the window and I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. And I think that was absolutely, it's, it's more trusting those, those feelings and those moments than any specific moment that I can really point to. It's a higher great hire. The woman that runs my operations is an unbelievable hire. It was totally meant to be because we were, um, it was a weekend that a photographer was becoming a grandmother for the first time. And I said, go to your grandchild. I'll cover the, the studio that weekend. And my ops woman was a customer and I clicked with her. And then she said, oh, I used to run operations for Ted Baker. And I'm like, you did what? And so I was like, can we meet for coffee? And I created a position for her. And now she runs operations. And it was that moment of like, you, like, like I, I have this connection with you and I know you're exactly what we need here. And it was just this weird thing that like, I never covered the studio for overflow and I'm here this weekend. And it was, it was just awesome. So, and it's paying attention to when those moments come up. And I find that you can only really hear it whether, you know, if you're spiritual or Christian or God's voice or just spiritual, the universe's voice, but you can only really hear that when you're in a calm state. And as entrepreneurs, it's very difficult to operate that way. But I find, I would say overall, to answer your question probably a little differently than you asked, it's really being present and calm enough to hear it when that comes up. And the best ideas come out of those moments. So you're a mom and you yeah. are an entrepreneur with a franchise model. 
Um, you're also very creative. What practices do you do to remain in that sense of calmness and presence rather than being scattered all over the place and hyper clicking and things like that? Yeah, exactly. And it's not easy. I, um, lately I have, this is actually part of my, one of my new year's resolutions is that lately I've been shutting down after my kids go to bed, no work. I've actually been starting to read fiction, which I haven't done since I was in like high school or college. And that was, it's great to get your brain a rest. I work out every morning, um, every weekday morning, uh, usually yoga or some kind of fitness video. So those are just some of the spiritual, and I have a spiritual practice. Um, mm -hmm. I have, uh, I practice the daily examining, which is the Jesuit tradition. Mm -hmm. So every night I kind of go through and ask God to show me where I've served him well and where I could be doing better. Mm -hmm. And just try to listen. So those are some of the um, some of the daily practices. But I find that the goal is to probably never get yourself so amped up that you can't you can't relax. You know, because if you're just running on overdrive, oh, the other thing I do is I never schedule a meeting after three o'clock, so that I can wind down before I see my kids at night. All of my meetings and one-on-ones, except for you. You're special. I appreciate um, that. I was just about to thank you for that. Yeah, I was going to say, when I saw the meeting come through, I'm like, 6 o'clock, all right. <laughs> this is a great podcast. My husband's downstairs with my kids. Who knows doing what? But uh, that, I really don't schedule meetings or one-on-ones after 3 o'clock. Uh, and that's just sort of my best practices. So there's little things I've learned over time. But the biggest thing is, is to let go not beat yourself up, don't ruminate over mistakes, those kinds of things. I mean, that bogged me down more than anything, more than saying like, oh, you got to take a vacation quarterly, you know? I think you could take a vacation quarterly and still be completely wired if you don't have those daily practices. Absolutely, absolutely. I, we talk almost, it, it can almost be overdone, but so much about success, especially, well, in any well, is about these mindset pieces, these spiritual practices, these mindset practices, these social and emotional practices that no matter where you are, just helps you remain yourself and centered and grounded. And that's where success comes from. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, um, it's way too easy to have too many things on your to-do list and Facebook and so on and so forth to forget that all of your power comes from you. You know, it does. And you know what? That's that unspoken pressure that every entrepreneur walks around with, right? When I'm happier, my kids are happier. When I'm more joyful, my employees seem to be doing better. When the business is good, it's really good. When you're in a cash crunch, it's, you know, goes right onto your, your personal finances. So it's that unspoken pressure that we all walk away around with. And every day, particularly the ones of us that are parents, you're giving, giving, giving. You give to your employees all day long, then you come home and you give to your children all day long. And we need an unusual amount of filling the tank back up more mm -hmm. than the average person. And again, this all took me a while to realize. I hope that it helps somebody who's listening because I really thought that I had to be superwoman and operate like everyone else and somehow have enough in the tank to go around. And I realized you, you have to give yourself extraordinary care to live this extraordinary life. Yeah. No matter what business you're in, you're in the energy business. Yeah. In the sense of if you're a manager, you're running around as a battery and just kind of charging people up just a little bit, right? And you get enough people, it's like at a certain point, like what's recharging your own batteries? Because if that gets to yeah. me, then everybody 
you know, yes. everybody falls under. So just, we have to remember that. So I'm so glad that you, that you went there because it's so easy to talk about all your success and be like, Oh, wait a second. She, you know, spends X amount of time every day, not doing business. Right? Working on yourself. Work, not working on yourself. And I see this all the time in my company too. The people who reinvest in themselves, participate in trainings, participate in online, um, assignments that I provide our photographers, those people are stay energized. The ones that do not continually invest in themselves, they have burnout on their face. They're the ones we end up phasing out over time. Yeah. It's, it's from, you know, a leadership level to a part-time photographer. If we're not continually investing in ourselves, you can guarantee you're going to get fried. Guarantee. You know, your business, your career, your work, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Yes. Right. And that took me a long time to realize too. And I think moving from independent photographer to CEO was so helpful for me personally because it allowed me the space to not have my identity completely caught up in the business. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, the first eight or nine years I was, you know, speaking at national conventions and I had... I was speaking in trade show booths and I had all of this recognition and by industry standards, I was very successful, but I was not happy mm -hmm. and moving into a role where I'm constantly empowering other people, providing, living within servanthood and feeling as though I'm actually living a purpose by making other people help other people pursue their dreams, which is really one of the most amazing things about franchising that has made me much, a much happier entrepreneur. And I'm not saying that's the way everybody's built, right? It's just a matter of knowing how you're built. And that's absolutely how I'm built. That's beautiful. It really is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. What was something that you thought would be harder than it actually ended up being? Franchising. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell us a little bit because franchising is one of those things that we don't talk about. So what, what's the reality of it? Like, what do you need to do? I mean, not, yeah. not, not don't write the book, but just, it seems like one of those, um, black, like dark art types of things. And apparently it's not as hard as she thought it might be. Yeah. And you know, I mean, give me a couple of years and maybe I'll say something different. I'm, I'm in the early stages, but I thought, you know what, this is going to be really difficult to train other people and how we do things. But I think because I was so meticulous with each studio opening and every time somebody asked me a question, I'm like, up, oh, that's a training video up. Oh, that's got to go in a manual. And really, I think what happened is that I prepared my business for my two maternity leaves. I have two little boys, 16 months apart. So I thought, okay, I just have to make sure that anybody knows how to answer a question in this company twice for about three months within a couple years. And then all of a sudden, I'm pretty ready to franchise <laughs> because I, I, I just sat in the last trimester of each pregnancy and just created content, put it on a secure website, created manuals, made sure everybody knew where things were. And then when I went to franchise, I realized that we had a lot of the infrastructure already in place and our unit level economics had been duplicated twice. So we pretty much knew how to do that. And that has been really exciting because we've had some tweaks and when you find some holes when you, when you, um, open up your first uh, franchise, but empowering other people to own their own success and watching them live out their dream is really rewarding. And, and um, once you've got the infrastructure, much easier than I thought it was going to be. So that, um, 
that's been really fascinating. It is fascinating. I'm going to pull everybody else in who, who doesn't quite know about franchising, but basically with franchising, someone buys a working business model, working validated business model where the economics works the same. If I dump in a dollar, it's going to bump out this. And you know, there's, it's more complex than that, but they are buying not a job. They're buying a business that works for them, right? They're buying an asset. Yep. They're buying an asset. And the thing about it is when you build your own business as if you were going to sell it or franchise it, you basically end up not building a business where you have a job, you have a business, you have an asset that you can leverage. And so what I'm saying here is, um, and John Morillo from um, wrote the book Built to Sell um, was, oh crap, I can't remember which, which episode it was, but he brought up the point that I wanted to bring up here is when you build a business as if you were going to sell it, you end up building a business that you would want to be a part of, that you would want to live in. So you take care of yourself and future strategies and future goals at the same time. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would have a lot less gray hairs in my head. Um, if I was one of my franchisees, <laughs> they, they're skipping like five years of, of us figuring this out. But it, it really what they're doing is they're, they're purchasing the rights, the systems, processes, operations, procedures, uh, economies of scale that we have produced as being the founder. They share in the royalties down the road. And also we will continue to produce content to make that valuable to them. And I think that there's probably old school franchising that you think of as fast food restaurants, but there's new school franchising. There's a lot of upscale female concepts like bar fitness concepts that are really taking off um, hair, hair um, blow dry bars for, for women's hair. And you see uh, sort of a new model of franchising come through that's very collaborative and very empowering. And that's something that we've been very excited about as, as we've been watching it grow. Yeah. Just as inside, 86% of all economic decisions in households are made by women. Yep. Just think about that, right? Yep. So um, if you're thinking franchising someone, I would highly encourage you to think about something in that realm where women make decisions about it because, well, just the, the way in which economic decisions are currently being made. Yeah. And a majority of retail GDP is, is a result of franchisees. I f the number escapes me, but I think it's in the 75 to 80% range. So it's, you know, it's, it's been really exciting for us to watch that grow um, and not have people not have to sit around and, you know, worry about all the decisions that we had to make early on and just link into a point of sale system that cost us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to build. Absolutely. It's exciting. That is exciting. Speaking of exciting, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Unanticipated challenge that I'm currently facing. I wouldn't say it's um, a challenge I'm currently facing is one that I have to kind of go back to being the face of the brand as franchising is growing. And it's not my comfortable place because I like being behind people and cheering them on. But with the growth of the franchise business, there has been um, more of a desire from our marketing team for me to be more in the forefront. And it's something I'm learning. I'm learning how to uh, create great content on Instagram. I'm learning how to... Uh, to, to pitch. And so that's been really interesting. It's been an unanticipated because I didn't expect myself to get kind of get thrown back into the limelight. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the questions I was going to ask you is that, you know, as I was prepping for this interview, I was looking through your different accounts and I was like, 
she's really good at PR, especially, I mean, I know this sounds bad, but especially for brick and mortar businesses who tend, yes. to, tend to be bad at, at PR and content marketing and social media, I'm like she is exceptionally good at this, right? And so you might not feel like you are, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know I, we are, but it's not me. <laughs> I can't take credit for it. Okay. My team, but okay. they are exceptionally good at content marketing. And it's something that you know, it's, it's a really strong infrastructure that we offer our franchisees. And we, you know, we specialize in discretionary purchases. So we have to be in front of our customers constantly to get the demand that we need to, to keep a studio moving. And, um, but I think just, they're always kind of putting me out in front and I'm like, oh guys, really? But, you know, I think it's good for the business. I've shied away from it because I, I think that, um, I've just I've found more joy in in other people being the the face of our success, but I understand that at the same time, like just like this interview, people probably have questions about how to do this as a woman, or how to have difficult conversations, or all the things that we've addressed. And I do have a desire to help other people live their dreams, so I'm trying to embrace that as much as I'm like, oh God, don't put me out there. Yeah, the, the listeners can't see your face and she's squirming just thinking, about it, right? Um, and you're doing a great job with it. Thank you. If people remember nothing else about you and your body of work and what you're building, what would you want that one thing to be? I think that if people were to remember one thing about my body of work is that there is that, that entrepreneurship is a long haul and and finding, and just because there's moments where it might not be joyful or you may make a mistake and it's going to happen, it doesn't mean it's not what you're supposed to be doing. It just means that you need to find people who are willing to be honest with you on how hard it is to grow a business. And I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing it because it is the best joy in the world to go to work and do what you love for a living. But it also needs it it requires it's a road less traveled and it requires things that um of you and the people around you that probably a different career path wouldn't laura thanks so much for joining me today it's been a fantastic interview and i'm so thank proud you. of what you're building thank you i appreciate you just giving me the opportunity to chat with you okay creative giants so you heard it from laura think about this entrepreneur journey that you're on or let's make it broader this life journey that you're on what can you do to um, empower those around you to help unlock your potential? And what can you do to maybe not hang on to some of those stories about mistakes made and what you're doing wrong and take those steps forward each and every day? It is so worth being in your own groove and I hope you step into that. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.